You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Dinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. Mine was a vast improvement over the last one. I watched the sports and hung out with my friends and decided I needed to pick up yet another hobby because I was influenced by an Instagram ad. And I just have so much free time that what's another hobby? I don't have free time. There is no free time, but who needs sleep anyway? Sleep is becoming a hobby more than uh, anything else right now. So yeah, uh, now I'm making a tiny little Snoopy crochet thing that I got off of an ad off of Instagram. So that's where I'm at. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Argyle. I figured this one's probably okay to review since it's only half produced by the place I work for. So I'll give it half of a review. Frankly, I don't get the hate on this movie. It's gotten a little bit shat on a little bit more than I think it deserves. It's very silly. It's a very silly movie. But if you go in with like zero expectations, you'll have a good time. It's like a himbo movie. It's dumb, but it's fun. It is a little too long, but I didn't notice it at the time. It was just like after we left the theater, I was feeling the the two plus hour runtime, which was a choice, but that's fine. (laughs) It's it's fun. Every time I watch a Sam Rockwell movie, I'm always bummed out because Sam Rockwell never gets like really good parts other than like when he won an Oscar. But I always want to watch more Sam Rockwell movies, but the Sam Rockwell movies are never that good. So I'm just sad because he's so charismatic. But yeah, that's that's that. Also, when we went to the theater, if this is your kind of thing, AMC already has those really horny dune bucket popcorn buckets available. No judgment. Uh, But they're the ones that, you know, definitely don't look like rhymes with flashlight. Yeah, I own one of those now. Uh, There was no version of me where I wasn't going to get the uh, the horny dune bucket. Eating popcorn out of it was a sensory experience, to say the least, but uh, I am going to take it back to the theater with me when we go see Dune in a, in a few weeks. So, yeah, that's <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's bigger than I thought it would be, too. They make it look like it's like a smaller size popcorn. It's like one of the regular size tubs. The 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 hand part is gigantic. If I can remember, I'll put I'll put it in my stories tomorrow when this episode or today when this episode comes out. My Criterion Collection pick for this week is Spine 820, which is Fantastic Planet, a 1973 French avant-garde animated film. It's one of just a slew of films that I've been trying to watch forever, but never felt like I was in the right mood. Now having seen it, I can't believe I ever sat on it. It's beautiful, it's weird, and it's an insightful look into the human condition. I think that's what the allegory was anyway. I watched it this morning while I was waking up because I wasn't ready to edit the script yet. And I was either, I'll be watching it again. That's not even a question, but like I was either too tired or too sober to fully grasp it. But I'm like, I'm watching art, but I don't feel like I'm fully appreciating said art. So I'll definitely be watching it again down the line. But uh, I might, yeah, need to be under the influence of some legal substances. 
Anyway, new month, new theme. This month, we're looking at the lives of four movie cowboys that dominated the Hollywood silver screen in their respective eras. We're starting off this week with probably the most famous cowboy of them all, John Wayne. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Hello, kid. Hello, Curly. Hiya, Buck. How's your folks? Oh, just fine, Ringo, except my grandfather came Shut up. Didn't expect to see you riding shotgun on this run, Marshal. Going to Lordsburg? I figured you'd be there by this time. No. Lame horse. Well, it looks like you've got another passenger. Yeah. I'll take the Winchester. You may need me in this Winchester, Curly. Saw a ranch house burning last night. You don't understand, kid. You're under arrest. Curly... A 13-pound baby named Marion Robert Morrison was born in his family's home on May 26, 1907, in Winterset, Iowa. Some sources listed Michael as his middle name, but legally Robert was his middle name for his entire life, so don't come at me. Marion's father was a mild-mannered pharmacist, a fact that frustrated his wife as she wanted him to be more ambitious to increase the fortunes of their family. Marion's father suffered from chronic poor health, which eventually forced him to close down the family business in Iowa and declare bankruptcy. The Morrison family traded the Iowa fields for the California sunshine when Marion was about seven, settling in Palmdale, which is north of Los Angeles, where his father owned a plot of land that he hoped to homestead. This move was in hopes to improve the patriarch's health, but this was late stage frontier time, and therefore the arid patch of land just wasn't going to do the job. Unsurprisingly, two years later, the family moved southeast to Glendale, California. If you don't know LA geography, Glendale is just east of Hollywood. I'm pretty sure they share border. There's a little neighborhood in the middle that I'm not sure if that's a different place, but yeah, they're right next to each other. Glendale's to the east. This did not fix the Morrison family fortune, and the family struggled and moved within Glendale constantly. This forced young Marion, who hated his name because he thought it was too feminine and he got teased for it, to be a bit of a loner. It was during this time, while he was working as a paperboy and a few other odd jobs, that Marion would get the nickname Duke from the local firemen. He got that name because that was the name of his dog, so they used to call them Big Duke and Little Duke. This nickname followed him for his entire life. Duke found the stage in high school, but he was already a big fan of the moving pictures by this point. Duke would work odd jobs on the film sets that would shoot in the foothills of Glendale that kind of looked Western adjacent. So if they needed, if it was a cheaper film and they needed to go out on location, wasn't a bad option if you couldn't go out to like Arizona. In high school, his loner era ended as the Duke was a tall, attractive guy in the drama club who was also a pretty good footballer. So like double whammy. The latter skill earned him a scholarship to USC or University of California if you're not from around here. I don't know how known of an acronym USC is, so there you go. While living the high life in college, the Duke met Josephine Sands, a member of high society in the Los Angeles Mexican-American community, and the two fell in love. But this youthful bliss was not to last, as in the Duke's sophomore year of college, his football career was cut short after a collarbone accident while body surfing. Not being able to play football meant that his scholarship was revoked, and this forced the future actor to drop out of college. 
After that, his former football coach managed to get him hired on the Fox lot. The six foot four plus former football player loved the fraternity of a film crew and gained a reputation on the lot for being a good worker. This caught the eyes of curmudgeonly director John Ford, and the two ended up getting on like gangbusters, and soon the Duke had bit parts in several of Ford's films. While working at Fox in these bit roles, director Raoul Walsh noticed him moving studio furniture one day while working as a prop boy and ultimately cast the Duke in his first starring role, which was The Big Trail from 1930, despite the studio not exactly being super stoked on the proposition. While the Duke was very attractive and he was a tall dude with that just oozed charisma, his name also just was not gonna do. Walsh and the studio head brainstormed, eventually landing on the name John Wayne for their new potential star. John was not present at this meeting that determined the name the whole world would soon know him as, but I guess he was cool with it because of, like, what happened next. And also that was, like, showbiz back then, so what are you gonna do? He never legally changed his name, so it kind of became, like, Marion was at home, John Wayne was, like, the persona kind of a thing. A lot of a lot of stars with uh, screen names like that, especially back then, had that distinction. The Big Trail was the first big-budget outdoor film of the sound era, which was an expensive affair that required hundreds of extras and had to be shot on location in the American Southwest for obvious reasons. It was also going to be Fox's biggest film of the year, so it'd be really nice if it made a lot of money. To take advantage of the gorgeous vistas they were shooting on, the film was actually shot twice. First, in regular 35mm film, and also in a new 70mm film stock technology which required a different camera and lenses. While the 70mm presentation was impressive by nearly all accounts, only a handful of theaters could afford to equip their theaters to show the film this way, as the Great Depression had happened the year before, so they couldn't afford to do it even if they wanted to, so the whole 70mm thing that was going to be the big hook for getting people to go to this movie instead became more of an exercise in contrition than anything else. The film was a pretty big flop, but time has been kinder to it. The big trail flopping caused John to be dropped from Fox. A year-long contract followed at Columbia, and he was put into small roles in A pictures, including 1931's The Deceiver, in which he played a corpse. He also appeared in the serial The Three Musketeers from 1933, which was an updated version of the novel of the same name that saw the Musketeers instead as members of the French Foreign Legion in contemporary North Africa. John's major bread and butter during this time, though, would be when he worked up to playing the lead in several Poverty Rose Studios westerns. The actor later guessed that he'd appeared in about 80 of these quote-unquote horse operas between 1930 and 1939. Horse operas was the nickname given to these predictable cookie-cutter films that were no more than about an hour, 55 minutes, I think was the average in length. It was a living, if nothing else, and it allowed the actor to develop his Western persona and acting skills. Stuntman Yakima Canute worked with John extensively to develop and perfect stunts and on-screen fight techniques that are still actually used in film today, apparently. I couldn't find a list, but I saw that in multiple sources, so I'm, I'm assuming it's true. It might not be, but there you have it. John is actually a major reason that the Poverty Row Westerns would show good guys fighting as realistically as the bad guys by not always having them fight fairly. So there could be a little bit of moral ambiguity on the side of good. 
The Duke would later claim, quote, Before I came along, it was standard practice that the hero must always fight clean. The heavy was allowed to hit the hero in the head with a chair or throw a kerosene lamp at him or kick him in the stomach. But the hero could only knock the villain down politely and then wait until he rose. I changed all that. I threw chairs and lamps. I fought hard and I fought dirty. I fought to win. In the film Writers of Destiny from 1933, John became one of the first singing cowboys to ever appear on film, though his voice was dubbed, so kind of not really. He also appeared in some of the three Mesquite Tears westerns, which was also based on the Three Musketeers, obviously. These were B-movie westerns that were based on western novels that had nothing to do with the Alexandre Dumas novel from whence it got its name. I think they just really liked the pun. It's it's a solid pun, but I'm also coffeeless at this moment at this point in time. In 1933, John finally proposed to Josephine, and on June 24th of that year, they made it official. A son arrived the following year, but John preferred drinking and playing cards with his Hollywood pals and being on John Ford's boat than being at home. And his deeply religious wife did not appreciate this, which you know, fair. Also, he was working all the time, but you know, it was it was a it was a, a couple it was a few things. There's actually, there's several old restaurants and bars in Hollywood, the really, really old historic ones that are still around, that have John Wayne being drunk stories. He famously, for example, had his own special booth at the Formosa in Hollywood. If you go, it's the first one when you walk through the door because he liked to make sure he could see exactly who was walking in and who was walking out. And one time he actually passed out in that booth. And the owner, just knowing it was John Wayne, what was John, John Wayne wasn't going to steal from from the Formosa, or at least not in any meaningful way. So the owner just locked up and left him there overnight to sleep it off. And the next day when he returned to open up for the, you know, the next day of business, as the legend goes, the Duke was in the kitchen making himself some eggs. So very non-bothered, he got locked up in the Formosa overnight. By the end of the 1930s, John Wayne was typecast as a cowboy and his career was showing signs of plateauing. Lucky for him, he had the right kind of friends. John Wayne's second chance to break into the big time came from John Ford, who wanted to cast the Duke in his next film, Stagecoach. The part would see John as the Ringo Kid, an outlaw who escaped from prison to avenge the deaths of his father and brother. Because of John's, at this point, extensive B-movie track record, Ford had difficulty getting financing for the film, but he was determined to keep his buddy in the role. After rejection by all the major studios, Ford struck a deal with independent producer Walter Wanger. The deal stated that Claire Trevor, who played a disgraced sex worker banished from her town and who was a much bigger star than John Wayne at the time, would receive the film's top billing. So it wasn't a B-movie star getting top billing for what was supposed to be an A-level picture. Stagecoach was shot partially on location in Arizona, as well as several of the Hollywood movie ranches. Shooting was a stressful affair as John Ford was notoriously a hard director to act for, but when it was released wide on March 3rd, 1939, Stagecoach quickly became a huge critical and financial smash. It's one of the first, I think it's one of the first Westerns I ever saw and actually enjoyed, but it's, it's a good one. It doesn't age well, but Westerns, most of them don't. But after over a decade of working in the picture business, John Wayne had finally become an A-list movie star. John and Ford followed up Stagecoach with The Long Voyage Home from 1940, which was a film based on several Eugene O'Neill one-act plays. The film featured one of John's most praised performances from the early years of his stardom. 
The Duke's first color film was Shepherd of the Hills from 1941, which was about a family in the Ozarks. The following year, he appeared in Cecil B. DeMille's Reap the Wild Wind from 1942, which features one of the few times that John would play someone that tipped the scale more into bad guy versus being the constant good guy. John Wayne was almost too old at 34, too previously injured, and had four kids when the U.S. joined World War II in 1941. But despite this, he toiled over whether or not to enlist since his career was finally going somewhere. Republic Pictures, who had the actor under contract, was also super against losing him since he was their only A-list star under contract. Ultimately, John requested an exemption, which he was granted. Instead, the Duke toured U.S. bases and hospitals in the South Pacific in 1943 and 1944 as part of the USO tour. Many close to John would claim that not serving in World War II was one of his life's biggest regrets. And in his widow's words, he would become a quote-unquote super patriot for the rest of his life to try to make up for not fighting. Not enlisting in World War II also made him in hot demand for acting roles, as many of the younger, more able-bodied actors had enlisted and were therefore otherwise engaged. During the war, John appeared in Flying Tigers from 1942, The Fighting Seabees from 1944, They Were Expendable from 1945, and Back to Bataan, also 1945. All of these featured the actor as kind of a poster boy for the American soldier who always overcame terrible odds. John, finally getting away from the Wild West genre, flourished in these roles and was praised for his performances. By the end of the war, John was firmly established as one of Hollywood's top stars. While this success was hard-earned and hardly came overnight, it came at a cost. Now married for nearly a decade, John and Josephine were growing further and further apart by the minute. John moved out of the house in 1942, which was a mutual decision, but Josephine didn't want a divorce due to her devout Catholic beliefs. But John was unofficially single and carried on a string of affairs. And in 1943, he met Esperanza Bauer, a Mexican actress that Republic had brought up from her homeland to appear in a few films opposite the Duke. They fell in love and proceeded to carry on a very public affair. This pushed and embarrassed Josephine to finally pull the trigger on their union, which ended officially in 1945. Esperanza and John married in January 1946 against the warnings of his friends. John made his debut as a producer in 1946 with Angel and the Badman for Republic, in which John played a gunfighter who finds the error of his ways thanks to a beautiful Quaker woman. John ironically began mentoring his troubled co-star, a relationship his new bride did not approve of. Esperanza began drinking heavily due to jealousy and resentment over his career and his other relationships, and the marriage became increasingly toxic. 1948's Red River is a big standout for John's career. In it, he plays a bullheaded but likable rancher. The complex role got the actor some of the best reviews of his career, surprising even his buddy Ford. Ford quickly cast John in two films Rapid Fire as a result, 1948's Ford Apache and 1949's She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. The combination of these three roles established John as an honest-to-goodness actor and an actual box office draw. 
This leverage got a passion project greenlit for John, which was 1949's Sands of Iwo Jima. He played Sergeant Stryker, a professional soldier with a heart of gold hidden behind a thick skin. The film showed the quote-unquote ideal serviceman in the height of the post-World War II years when these films were at their peak popularity. The performance gained John Wayne an Oscar nomination and also cemented him, in addition to being the quintessential cowboy, as the optimal soldier as well. After all of this success, in 1950, at 43 years of age, John Wayne was named the most popular star in Hollywood by a movie magazine. Then we get to the early 1950s when that whole communist witch hunt thing happened in Hollywood. And our subject this week was very much on the wrong side of history on that one. John Wayne became the president of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals in 1949. His public persona as the ideal American, quote unquote, coupled with his extreme patriotism, made him the natural choice. While he was a figurehead more than doing anything directly to screw over his fellow entertainment peeps, he was a mouthpiece for an organization that drafted lists with names of individuals that the board of the organization believed were communists trying to corrupt the American people through motion pictures. If you remember my episodes about this from about a year and a half ago, you know that this was not the case, but the hearings trying to find these so-called communists blackballed people from their careers and destroyed hundreds of lives. In between these lovely political hobbies, the Duke and Ford shot The Quiet Man, a romance set in Ireland. John's performance was actually really good, as was the film, which got seven Oscar nominations. Noticeably absent was an acting nomination for John, as his opinions were making him pretty unpopular with his Hollywood cohorts, and they got a pick who was nominated each year. The American people at large, however, loved him, so John continued to work nonstop, pretty much. In 1952, John Wayne co-founded Batjack, or Bajock, a production company through which he produced many films starring himself. He was also offered a producing deal with Warner Brothers, which allowed the actor to take a step back from fighting invisible commies in reality, which was costing him socially, and instead he got to fight them on the silver screen. The first of these films was Big Jim McLean from 1952, in which the actor played a government investigator sent to Hawaii to break up a communist ring. The film was a box office smash. Also in 1952, John's second marriage began breaking up. On a workcation to Peru, the 45-year-old actor had met 23-year-old Peruvian actress Pilar Palette. He brought her back to L.A. with him. The two started up an affair, and the Duke soon filed from divorce from Esperanza. The divorce trial was nasty, as Esperanza wanted to drum up as much sympathy as possible to get a bigger divorce settlement, and the whole thing was a tabloid chaos demon. The divorce didn't finalize until November 1954, but never even put a dent on the Duke's public image, so if that's what she wanted to do, that is not how that shook out. Two days after the divorce was finalized, John married Pilar in Hawaii. He would later joke that he was married at breakfast, divorced at lunch, and remarried by dinner. Three years after his last Western, John put the cowboy hat back on for John Ford's 1956's The Searchers. In the film, the Duke played a soldier returned from war who has to save his niece after she is kidnapped by a tribe of indigenous people. 
despite all of the changes that was happening in the industry with the advent of television and a new youth community less interested in the relics of the past, John Wayne was, in this case, one of the exceptions as the searchers coerced people out of their homes and made the film a box office smash. That would not last. The rest of the 50s would see a series of films starring John Wayne that failed to live up to the actor's prior work in both quality and box office returns. Not only that, but his wife Pilar was tired of, quote, living like a gypsy and yearned for less time on the road for a more stable home life. John refused to slow down despite pushing 50 and welcomed a few more kids with his third wife. He was also beginning to feel his age. His receding hairline was hidden with a toupee, and the once felt actor found it increasingly difficult to maintain the cut figure he'd always had as a young man. But despite that, he refused to stop working, even for a moment. Even when everyone in his life was telling him, buddy, you can take a nap, it's okay. This was also the era where he played Genghis Khan, which I mentioned a few months back in the Cursed Film episode, so that's kind of the era we're dealing with here in terms of quality. Speaking of films that didn't age well, John also starred in the 1958 film The Barbarian and the Geisha, directed by John Huston. The film was shot on location in Japan, and the Duke and Huston clashed throughout the shoot. The film was panned, audiences couldn't be bothered, and the actor would later consider it one of the worst films he was ever a part of. After a series of stone-cold flops, Rio Bravo from 1959 would break the actor's cold streak. The film reteamed John with another former collaborator, Howard Hawks, whom he'd worked with quite a bit earlier on in his career. John played a sheriff in the star-studded cast, and the film was one of the most popular of the year. The actor closed out his fourth decade in the film industry on a high note. It was a short-lived victory, however, as the next film the two would make together flopped at the box office. In the spring of 1959, John found out that he was nearly broke and couldn't pay his bills. Given how much the dude worked, that sounds kind of crazy, right? Well, in a tale as old as time, it turned out that his financial advisor had squandered nearly all of the Duke's fortune. In an attempt to turn that bad look around, John bet everything on his next movie, which was a project he'd been wanting to make for about 15 years. The film would see the actor not just performing, but directing and producing as well. The acting bit was not originally on the table, but rather was a caveat presented by United Artists, who financed the film in part. They didn't want a John Wayne film without John Wayne on the screen. Shooting the film The Alamo was a family affair and featured several members of the Wayne family in the cast and crew. Spread thin, the Duke struggled with his numerous roles and his lack of directing skills was a big problem. John Ford showed up to set unannounced and even tried to kind of take over the film's direction at one point, but John managed to placate him by having his mentor direct the second unit. The budget on this film got out of control, almost doubling when all was said and done. One of the actresses was murdered by her boyfriend while she was on location, and the stress of being three things at once led the actor to smoke over a hundred cigarettes per day. John ended up having to take out a second mortgage on his home and was willing to give up his own salary just to get this film made. When The Alamo finally released in 1960, it flopped hardcore. John's directing was called quote-unquote embarrassing by one critic. The film did somehow get six Oscar nominations, but none of them were for John. It did win an Oscar for Best Sound. Since the Alamo didn't work out, John returned to the Western genre. 
This included 1962's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and John played The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. The film flopped. The film was directed by John Ford, as was 1963's Donovan's Reef, which was the final collaboration between John Ford and John Wayne, which did moderately better. By this point, Ford was well past his prime and quite, quite ill. McClintock from 1963 saw John in a more comedic role, which audiences responded to more positively. He was still a cowboy in this movie, but very much the cowboy people knew and loved with a, like a comedic twist. And audiences responded very positively to that. And that made the film one of the biggest releases of the year. In 1964, a visigal before he went to shoot yet another film uncovered a troubling revelation. An x-ray found a spot on the notorious chain smoker's lungs. It was a big chunk of cancer that would require major surgery to remove. This fact was hidden from the public and the procedure was covered up as a, quote, sports-related injury surgery, corrective surgery. That sports-related corrective surgery was actually two six-hour procedures that led to the Duke's left lung being completely removed. When he left the hospital three weeks later, he was met with press outside and forced himself to stand and walk to the car, lest he be viewed as weak. He didn't like the lying and ultimately announced his situation in December when he was in the clear. Against doctor's orders, and just four months after having a whole ass lung removed, John Wayne was back at work for 1965's The Sons of Katie Elder. The film shot partially at an altitude of 6,000 feet, which if you've ever been to high elevations with a lung issue after living in Hollywood, which is an elevation of basically nothing for several years, it's a bitch. It's not fun. It's a bad time, especially when you got to do like stunts and shit. So the actor was actually required to wear an oxygen mask between takes because he refused to use a stunt double. As you can probably guess from things I've mentioned earlier in this episode, John Wayne was an active Republican. And in the mid to late 1960s, he was approached by the Republican Party to potentially run for president. I know, an actor running for president that's so crazy could never happen. But he was uninterested and, you know, Reagan happened and other stuff happened. Instead, the Duke went on a USO tour for the troops in Vietnam before returning to Hollywood for his second time in the directing chair with the Green Berets, which released in 1968. The film was meant to pay tribute to the soldiers overseas and kind of was just in opposition of all the social upheaval that was happening in the US at the time, which was widely against John's sensibilities because he was, quote unquote, a super patriot. The film killed amongst the more conservative crowd, but was protested by anti-war demonstrators, and it was the last time John Wayne would ever step into the director's chair. When in doubt, back to the Western. John played one of his best-known characters, an old frontier marshal named Rooster Cogburn, who is struggling with the changing world and is hired by a young woman to find her father's killer in the film True Grit. True Grit premiered in the Summer of Love to great acclaim, and the film gained John Wayne his second Academy Award nomination and first win. 1970 saw four John Wayne films alone, so no rest for this cowboy. Despite this, the actor was still struggling with money, and the location shooting put a further strain on his family. In 1973, after 20 years of marriage and three children, Pilar and John separated. That same year, his mentor, John Ford, passed away. Rooster Cogburn returned to the screen in 1975 with the film called Rooster Cogburn, which saw him paired with Catherine Hepburn. 
The following year, for the first time since 1950, the actor slipped from the top 10 box office draws. Not surprising, as the 68-year-old was having a slew of health issues. Because of a chronic hacking cough he was having at this time, he feared that his cancer had returned. He brought that anxiety to his next film, The Shootist from 1976, which would be his final feature film. One of his final scenes, A Shootout, was shot just days after being released from the hospital after a two-week stay due to influenza. In January of 1979, the Duke was diagnosed with stomach cancer. A few months later, the ailing actor attended the Oscars, and his physical decline was evident and it was alarming. In June, after months of chemo, the actor was admitted to the hospital, and he never left. John Wayne died on June 11, 1979, surrounded by his children. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Newport Beach. Random connection to my life and people I know, my church history teacher, I went to a Catholic high school, was actually an altar boy at his funeral, which took place at the Catholic Church of Beverly Hills. Despite the things about this man that don't age well from a 2024 lens, John Wayne was an idol for millions of Americans through five decades. To this day, John Wayne is still considered one of the best movie stars to have ever lived. And as a star of over 170 films, that's hard to argue. The influence that a handsome man from Iowa had on Hollywood and the world is, frankly, eternal. The winner is... John Wayne in two If I'd have known that, I'd have put that patch on 35 years earlier. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm no stranger to this podium. I've come up here and picked up these beautiful golden men before, but always for friends. One night I picked up two, one for Admiral John Ford, one for our beloved Gary Cooper. I was very clever and witty that night, the envy of even Bob Hope. <laughs> but tonight I don't feel very clever, very witty. I feel very grateful, very humble, and all thanks to many, many people. I want to thank the members of the Academy, to all you people who are watching on television, Thank you for taking such a warm interest in our glorious industry. Good night. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox count which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me coffee, where you buy me a coffee. I decided I needed to crochet this morning, so I had no coffee, and I'm feeling it a little bit, so I'm going to probably deal with that issue before I start editing this. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're going to look into the life and career of Gary Cooper. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Hey.